One of the things we're going to talk about in this episode is a whole bunch of pictures. So to see those pictures and more, check out the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel. 52 years ago yesterday, human beings first set foot on a place that was not the planet they evolved on. Okay, it was just the moon, but that's still quite an accomplishment. It's estimated that more than 2.8 billion work hours went into the 11 Apollo missions, six of which actually got humans to the surface of the moon, for a total of just over 2,500 hours in space, or about 100 days. The Mercury program had been followed by the Apollo program, and it was the eighth Apollo mission, Apollo 11, yes, the numbering got a little bit wonky for a number of reasons, that has gone down in history except a surprisingly large number of people think that actually it was all a hoax filmed here on a terrestrial soundstage for whatever reasons, and they have all kinds of proof, they think. This is one of the biggins. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Magnificent Magnificent Desolation, Desolation. the moon moon landing landing was a hoax. hoax. The space race was on between the two Cold War superpowers, and whoever successfully put a human being on the moon and returned them safely to Earth would win a massive propaganda battle. On February 3, 1966, the Soviet Luna 9 spacecraft became the first object from the Earth to touch the moon when it performed a soft landing. It was also the first to send back pictures of the surface. The Americans followed suit with the Surveyor 1, which landed on June 2, 1966. The Soviets sent the Luna 13 on December 24th. The next six Soviet attempts failed, with three not even getting into Earth orbit, two of them getting stuck in low Earth orbit, and one crashing into the moon. So even though the Soviets had got something to the moon first, the Americans were having better luck. Of their next six launches, four were successful. One of the failures, Surveyor 2, crashed into the moon, and radio contact was lost with Surveyor 4, so maybe it landed okay and maybe it didn't, but we had no way of knowing. The Americans and Soviets had also successfully put up five lunar satellites, each between March 21st, 1966 and April 7th, 1968. On September 15, 1968, a Soviet craft, the Zond 5, containing non-human biological specimens, including two tortoises, looped around the moon and came back to Earth. This was their seventh attempt, but only their first success. The next two tries also failed, but on August 8, 1969, they were again successful with the Zond 7. But by then, it was too late. 
at 20 hundred hours 17 minutes UTC on July 20th, 1969, the American Apollo 11 touched down on the surface of the moon. A bit over six and a half hours later, just before 0300 UTC, astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first human being to step foot on land that was not the planet Earth. Armstrong remains one of only 12 people, interestingly all white male Americans, and probably all straight too, to have actually walked on the surface of the moon. A place that, while close to us, cosmically speaking, is actually very, very different from Earth. Upon stepping out onto the lunar surface, Buzz Aldrin called it magnificent desolation. That's the story as we know it. Or, or maybe... maybe... The U.S. totally freaked out by the Soviet October 4th, 1957 launch of Sputnik, faked the moon landing on a movie set, possibly filmed by Stanley Kubrick, an American filmmaker who moved to England in 1961 to avoid U.S. censorship while he made the movie Lolita. That is what many, many conspiracy folks think. In 2019, Gallup conducted a survey on the subject and found that 10% of Americans still believe it to be a hoax. That's almost 33 million people, up from only 6% back in 1999, which is 16 million since the population was lower then. However, the 2019 number is lower than a poll conducted in July 1970, just a year after the event, when a full 30% of Americans at the time said they didn't believe it. That's 61 million people at the time. Of the 10% today who cry foul, the bulk of them, 18%, are under the age of 34. It should come as no surprise then that many of these youngsters also adhere to a variation of the flat earth theory. As is so often the case, people who believe in one conspiracy theory tend to believe in several of them. I think they get a group rate. Across all age groups, a whopping 98% of moon landing deniers also think the government routinely spies on its citizens using everyday technology, and just over half of people of all ages don't think we ever sent a Mars rover to the fourth planet. To be fair, 53% of those folks do think eventually we did get to the moon, but later than July 20th, 1969. Or that we did get to the moon on that day, but we faked the video footage and photographs to hide what we actually found. As with any conspiracy theory worth its salt, adherents have a number of, quote, proofs that they point to. Most of them are about the pictures from the moon that the astronauts took, but there are other reasonings as well. The most popular of those is humans cannot survive in that environment because of radiation and or solar flares, no matter how much shielding they have and spaceflight is impossible. Or spaceflight is impossible because the Earth is flat. Or the moon is unreachable because it's further away than the sun and is surrounded by rings of fire and ice. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole flat earth thing here. That's going to be a whole separate biggin' episode in the future. And that last item comes from a strict reading of sacred texts of the Hare Krishnas. And so I think we can rather easily just discount it because it is obviously demonstrably and measurably not true. But the other one deserves a little consideration. It's, it's Ray Deation. Yes, that is a Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan reference. Space is not actually empty. There's gas and dust and photons and cosmic rays and neutrinos and electromagnetic fields and x-rays and gamma rays, residual radiation from the Big Bang and the solar wind and a whole bunch of stuff that is unfriendly towards tiny little meat sacks mainly filled with water and protein. 
The sun emits a constant stream of charged particles that has come to be known as the solar wind, a sort of a plasma made of electrons, protons, and alpha particles, which are the nuclei of helium particles, and other tiny little subatomic bits. If this ever hit the surface of the Earth, it would probably kill pretty much everything alive. But we're lucky. We have a protective shield. The solar radiation plasma plus a smattering of cosmic rays are held off the Earth in two big parabolas by our magnetosphere that ranges from 400 miles to 36,000 miles above the surface of the Earth. These are called the Van Allen belts. Well, well, goes the reasoning, there's no way, no way fragile, fragile little humans, humans could ever pass through such a hot radiation, radiation zone, zone and survive, survive, not to mention dogs and turtles. To lay people, the term radiation seems monolithic. We think of atomic bombs, maybe giant ants from them, or Bruce Banner being turned into the Hulk, though that was gamma rays. Why? Why? To, survive to survive the level of radiation found in the Van Allen belts, a spacecraft would need six feet of lead shielding. Lead is very dense, and so radiation has a hard time getting through. That's what the conspiracy people say. Not so, in fact. If you were going to be near a very large atomic bomb explosion, then six feet of lead would offer some protection. But again, it's a different kind of radiation. There are many kinds. <laughs> Just a couple of millimeters of aluminum can stop electrons and alpha particles can be shielded against with just a piece of paper. Also, even though the Van Allen belts are quite large, the particles moving through that area are relatively few and far between. So it's actually a pretty simple matter to protect against that radiation. Also, the Van Allen belts don't totally surround the Earth and can actually be avoided with some careful planning. The Apollo missions miss the inner belt entirely and only hit the thinnest part of the outer belt while traveling quite fast, and so the astronauts really weren't exposed for very long at all. A short, intense exposure to radiation is actually less harmful than lower-intensity, long-term exposure, since the body recovers from any radiation damage after exposure stops. Also, lead and other metals, as well as concrete, are not the only things that can protect against radiation. Other substances, which are lighter, like polythylene, are better at shielding against the type of radiation that surrounds the Earth, and these materials are commonly used in spacecraft, especially manned spacecraft. And it worked. Each astronaut wore a personal device to measure their radiation exposure, and the readings were within acceptable limits. In the Apollo 11 mission with Neil and Buzz and Michael Collins, everybody always forgets Michael Collins, so let's just give a shout-out to Michael Collins, who stayed behind in orbit while Buzz and Neil took all the glory. Anyway, those three only got about 0.18 rads exposure on their skin. And by the way, the skin gets far more radiation exposure than internal organs. So 0.18 rads is very roughly the equivalent of 1.8 chest x-rays at the doctor's. A mammogram is actually higher than that. Apollo 14 measured the highest dosage with 1.14 rads, which is about the same as six or seven chest x-rays or four mammograms. Keep in mind, down here on Earth, we do not live in a radiation-free environment. Some space radiation does leak through the atmosphere and magnetosphere, and there are plenty of naturally radioactive substances around down here, like thoron and radon, for example, and minerals both in the ground and even in our own bodies routinely undergo radioactive decay. Hell, you get one millirem from a three-hour jet flight. Smoking a pack of cigarettes gets you 36 millirems. Even some foods have radioactive particles, especially bananas, red meat, beer, and even just the water we drink and the very air that we breathe. 
The average American gets about 310 millirems, which is 0.31 rem, of radiation a year from background sources. That's roughly the equivalent of a chest x-ray every 12 days. And then they get that same amount again from medical procedures. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, say the conspiracy people. Well, all, all the, the x-ray, x-ray radiation, radiation in space would ruin, ruin any, any photographic, photographic film. film. A doctor named David Grove says that when he exposed film to x-rays, it was ruined. The problem is, is that he used x-rays more than a thousand times more energetic than those found in space. So no surprise that his film went wonky. He says he used doses of 25, 50, and 100 rem, but that can't possibly be right because the measurement rem is only used for radiation absorbed by the human body. So he probably meant rads. And in order for a human to absorb 25 rads of X-ray radiation, they would have to be in space between the Earth and the Moon nonstop for six years. So he used way too much. Also, the film in the spacecraft was protected in metal canisters. It's not like they had it just lying around that tiny capsule. Oh yeah? Yeah. Well, what about about solar solar flares? Records seem to indicate that there were more than 1,400 solar flares during the Apollo mission. Surely that's too many to survive, right? Well, there are solar flares and then there are solar flares. Like earthquakes, as the excellent website Clavius.org points out, which is all about refuting moon landing deniers' claims. I know this from personal experience. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area and I grew up with daily, literally daily, earthquakes. Usually, you don't feel anything at all because they're so minor. Maybe a picture on the wall is a little bit askew, but most of the time, honestly, not even that. A second, maybe a second and a half of slight disorientation, and it's all over. All these teeny tiny earthquakes, however, are detected by monitoring equipment. But they really aren't worth talking about at the human scale. Obviously, the big Loma Prieta earthquake in October 1989, which measured 6.9 on the Richter scale, was a big one, but that's an exception. But, 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 some say NASA NASA has has admitted admitted that one of the greatest greatest dangers for a manned Mars mission is solar flares. So therefore, solar flares are dangerous. So therefore, going to the moon is dangerous because of solar flares. Except that it took three days to get to the moon and another three days to get back and it will take two years to get to Mars. In that long span of time, astronauts will almost certainly encounter at least one fairly major solar event. Maybe not the sunny equivalent of the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, but a shaker for sure. So that's a very brief look at the radiation argument. Real is good. good. Interesting Interesting is better. better. That's something that Stanley Kubrick said to Matthew Modine on set while making Full Metal Jacket. Stanley Kubrick's landmark film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, came out on April 3rd, 1968, and boy did that footage sure look a lot like the actual moon footage 15 months later from Apollo 11. Of course, anyone who knows anything at all about Stanley Kubrick knows that he was an incredibly obsessive person about detail, and he'd enlisted the help of actual science experts to get things as right as he could. Plus, Kubrick was working with Arthur C. Clarke, a hard science guy, 
writer of fiction and nonfiction and credited with coming up with the concept of the communications satellite. Plus, Stanley Kubrick didn't do the special effects. He just approved them. Douglas Trumbull did the special effects. Yes, yes that's, that's why, why NASA, NASA asked, asked him, him to film their hoax, their hoax footage. footage. As similar as Kubrick and Trumbull's vision was to the actual moon, there were some marked differences as well. Trumbull and Kubrick did their best, but they couldn't get it all right. So where does this notion that Stanley Kubrick is behind it all come from? Probably because, to someone not looking for any details, 2001 is close enough to raise suspicions in an already suspicious mind. The Kubrick idea probably originated in a 1995 Usenet article titled Stanley Kubrick and the Moon Hoax. It was in a humor subnet, which means that it was meant as a joke. The article says that Kubrick's brother, Raoul Kubrick, had been an active member of the Communist Party, and this was a huge embarrassment for Kubrick. So when the feds in America threatened to publicly reveal this, he agreed to shoot their fake boon landing in exchange for their silence. The problem there is that, as I said, Stanley Kubrick left the United States in 1961, and he also did not have a brother named Raoul or Giuseppe or anything else. Plus, this 1995 article mentions that Kubrick, who was a stickler for authenticity, insisted that they shoot the actual moonwalk sequence on the actual surface of the moon. So clearly, it was a joke. In 2009, schlock conspiracy filmmaker Jay Wiedner reiterated the whole brother story and went further saying that Kubrick's 1980 horror masterpiece The Shining is actually a veiled confession. And there's tons of symbolism encoded in the movie. Kubrick's daughter, Vivian Kubrick, has denounced all of these claims that her father filmed the fake moon landing footage quite vociferously. And she's no stranger to conspiracy thinking since she seems to have fallen for Scientology the whole QAnon thing, and she promotes ideas popular among white supremacist Proud Boys and the Boogaloo movement. She recently called Bill Gates a bioterrorist responsible for COVID-19 as part of a global depopulation program. Yeah, she thinks the moon landing hoax stuff is just too out there. Way back in 2002, French documentary filmmaker William Carell made a mockumentary called Dark Side of the Moon, purporting to be proof that the Kubrick did it conspiracy theory is true, but the whole thing, again, is obviously a joke and full of intentional inaccuracies to point this out to the careful viewer. In addition to using actors to play various fake people, Carl got actual interviews with Kubrick's widow, Kubrick producer Jan Harlan, Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, and others, all under false pretenses, and then cut in sections of totally different interviews conducted by other people at different times to make it all look as if they had been confessing this dark truth. Over the credits, there's a blooper reel that seems to say that everyone involved knew that they were making a fake documentary about a hoax, but in fact, they did not. So that's a hoax within the hoax. Carl says the movie was intended to be an exercise in how easy it is to selectively choose information to create misinformation. He says he took as his inspiration Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast on the radio and the 1978 movie Capricorn One about a faked Mars landing conspiracy, a film back in the 70s that had some people thinking that in fact that movie was a disguised admission that the moon landing had been faked. So Carl's Dark Side of the Moon was meant as kind of a joke and kind of a lesson in how easy it is to fake things. But plenty of people believed it anyway, including numerous YouTubers and moon hoax wackadoodle Wayne Green, who used this faked film as proof of his moon landing hoax conspiracy theories. 
Now, if that isn't meta, I just don't know what is. A picture is worth, worth a thousand, a thousand words. words. All the so-called photographic evidence is predicated on two contradictory ideas. One, that a huge, super-organized conspiracy to mock up a moon landing on a soundstage involving ultimately more than 400,000 people was set in motion and no one has spilled the beans in the ensuing 52 years. And two, the perpetrators made some dumb mistakes that even Joe Schmo can see after looking at the pictures and film footage for just a few minutes. And that no one involved noticed the these mistakes prior to releasing the pictures and film footage to the public. People see all sorts of things that make them suspect foul play in the moon landing. The picture, the picture quality, quality is, is too, too good. good. They must, they have, must been have been taken by taken professionals, by professionals not, not some gussied up pilots. Well, trust your equipment. To document such a momentous event, the astronauts were supplied with the very best photographic equipment of the time, like 70 millimeter Hasselblads with semi-automatic mechanisms and custom-made lenses. It should come as no surprise that out of literally tens of thousands of photos taken during the six Apollo landing missions, NASA chose the best ones for their publicity. That's why you see the same pictures over and over again. The crappy pictures, of which there are many, are just not generally shared. In a famous, in a famous picture, picture, you can, you see, can see Armstrong, Armstrong reflected, reflected in Buzz, Buzz Aldrin's, Aldrin's visor, visor, but Neil, but Neil doesn't, doesn't have, have a camera, camera in his, in his hands, hands, so it's so fake. It's the cameras they used were chest-mounted, not handheld instamatics like the ones you take to take snaps of your borderline feral children while on vacation. If you zoom in on the reflection, you can actually see the camera right there on the chest of Neil's spacesuit. The same holds for the Pete Conrad reflected in Alan Bean's visor Apollo 12 photo, and so on. The cameras, the cameras used had these had little these crosses, crosses in them, in them. But, sometimes but sometimes these little these crosses, crosses appear behind objects or rotated or in the wrong place. place. This shows that the pictures have been doctored. The Hasselbad cameras had a plate of clear glass with small crosshairs called reticles and sometimes fiducules on them. These are known as Rousseau plates. The crosshairs allow you to measure distances of things photographed as well as correct for any distortions that come out during developing the film and also correct for misalignment. The idea that the evil conspirators somehow completely forgot about this when they were cutting and pasting things into their faked photos and sometimes accidentally covered up these reticles is laughable at best. And in the original pictures, no reticles are covered up. This only happens in some scanned or copied versions of the pictures. This is most likely because emulsion bleeds over sometimes and then covers part of that thin black cross. This is usually because the picture was a little bit overexposed and it is called image bleed. It happens all the time to photographers, just go ask one. As for the reticles being in the wrong place or rotated, that's because some of the pictures shared with the public had been cropped and shifted to make them easier to see or frame them in a different way so that they're more pleasing to the eye. And again, if you're going to go through all the trouble to do this, why wouldn't you use a different kind of a camera that doesn't have the little crosses? There's a, There's rock, a rock with a with big, a big letter, letter C written on it in some of the pictures. Clearly, Clearly, this was, this a, was stage a stage prop, prop or a piece of set dressing. This again assumes amazing carelessness and lack of professionalism in a conspiracy about an important event in the Cold War propaganda-wise. Look again at that picture and it's clearly a fiber or hair of some sort on the glass of the scanner used to process the photograph. In the original photograph, there is no C. By the dawn's early light, 
like that picture of Lee Harvey Oswald in someone's backyard holding a gun, the shadows are all wrong in the pictures. Well, Stanley Kubrick had been a photographer before getting into movies and maintained an astonishing amount of control over the images he produced. So something as basic as where the shadows fell would seem pretty elementary to somebody like him. But okay, maybe it wasn't Kubrick who shot all this stuff. Maybe it was someone less knowledgeable who took the photos. Though why NASA would hire someone who couldn't figure out something so basic is a mystery, but there you have it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you can see, you can see multiple, multiple shadows, shadows which, means which means multiple light sources, sources which, means which means studio lights, lights and, and that's, that's proof, proof it was faked. Well, there's the light from the sun, there's light reflected off the lunar surface, which has an albedo of around 12%. There's uneven ground, so some shadows seem longer or shorter from the perspective of the camera. There's lunar dust, which scatters light because it's different than Earth dust. And the cameras were using wide-angle lenses, which distort images. Shadows also tend to converge on the horizon in what's known as the vanishing point perspective. So lines that are, in fact, actually parallel may appear not parallel in a picture. You can even duplicate the effect here on Earth. Again, all of these are things any competent photographer could tell you. Just go ask one. Some people find their evidence not in the pictures, but in the audio records of the Apollo missions. The moon is about 1.3 light seconds from Earth, though the distance does actually vary. Uh, listen to our previous episode about the moon for that and more info on our nearest neighbor. So, so there should have been a one to two second delay when the Apollo astronauts were talking with Houston and vice versa. But you can plainly hear that there is no delay in many of the documentary movies on the subject. That's because the filmmakers edit out the delay since it adds nothing except time to the story and makes their movie boring. In the real-time recordings, which are archived online, you can hear the expected delay. Also, Houston Control was recording conversations on their end, so sometimes the audio files will have this instantaneous response from them recorded, even though it would take another second or two for that response to actually travel to the moon. Why do none of the lunar modules in these supposed missions kick up dust or make blast craters, huh? Because it's not a movie, it's real life. The engine was throttled way down on the descent and the whole module was no longer deaccelerating. By the time the module got to the actual lunar surface, the engine thrust was only about 1.5 PSI. Compare that to a normal car engine, which is around 1,200 PSI. Also, the engines did, in fact, scatter dust, which you can see on these 16 millimeter films taken of each landing. And this was also reported by the astronauts themselves who saw it. But lunar soil, which is what the really fine part of the lunar regolith is called, is extremely fine and just doesn't show up on the live video feeds. There's no blast crater because again, it was really, really low thrust and the regolith on the moon is very compacted underneath the fine dust-like soil. So there was a blast crater, but not a very big one. It was only about five inches deep. The sky and all the photographic evidence is totally black. There are no stars. God, well, that sure seems like a pretty major boo-boo, doesn't it? Especially, again, for someone as detail-obsessed as Stanley Kubrick was. But he also really didn't have stars in the background for his moon scenes in 2001, so maybe he just didn't know that, yeah, you can totally see stars from the moon's surface if you're in shadow. Kind of. 
Stars are actually very faint, and it takes the human eye a little bit of time to adjust enough to be able to see them. You can get a camera to mimic this by increasing the exposure, but none of the photos taken on the moon had that kind of exposure because they weren't trying to film the stars, they were trying to get pictures on the surface and in the foreground. Tonight, go outside somewhere where you can see the stars with your naked eye, and then just take a quick picture of the sky with your phone. You will not see stars in the picture. Also, even in space, the light of the sun blots out much of the starlight. Movies like Star Wars and all the rest kind of have it wrong, just like an X-Wing wouldn't blow up in one big, fast, noisy boom in space either, but that's a whole nother pet peeve. During the lunar day, the astronauts could not see stars in the sky with the naked eye, just like here on Earth. Even on the space shuttle, stars can only occasionally be seen out the windows. And there are a few pictures from the moon that do have stars. Alan Shepard took a snap of Venus, which is very bright, from the lunar surface during Apollo 14. Al Warden took pictures from lunar orbit of Mercury that has some background stars around it during Apollo 15. And Apollo 16 had an ultraviolet camera that sat in the landing module's shadow and took a number of pictures, including one of Earth, that has the correct star alignment behind it. You know, you know there's, there's not, not enough, enough moisture, moisture on the moon, on the moon for the astronauts, the astronauts to have, to have left, left footprints, footprints in the lunar, lunar dust, dust, so those, so are, those fake. are fake. Lunar soil does not experience weathering effects like particles here on Earth do because, you know, atmosphere. So, they have very, very sharp edges, unlike, say, beach sand at Waikiki. All the astronauts compared it to wet sand or talcum powder in consistency. But if you go down really, really, really small, you'll see that it is made up of razor-sharp edges. Because of these razor-sharp edges, that's why the particles stick together and then they hold their shape in vacuum. Okay, okay. how did the, the astronauts, astronauts leave, leave footprints, footprints, but the lander, the lander left, left no, no impressions, impressions in this super-fine super dust. dust. After, After all, the all, eagle was way heavier than a person. On Earth, the eagle weighed about 17 U.S. tons, yet on the moon, it weighed only a little bit over one ton. The module's foot pads are three feet across, so the amount of weight is spread out more and the amount of pressure is greatly reduced. The humans, while certainly lighter, have much smaller boots, so the amount of pressure in the regolith dust is greater. And also, the module's foot pads did leave impressions, just not very deep ones, because you cannot expect things to act the same way on the moon as they do here on Earth, because it's a different environment. In photos that are supposed to be miles apart, you can see the exact same background. So they just use the same painted backdrop again and again. Wow, if that were true, then these people were lazy and stupid, huh? The things we see in the background are not identical, they're just similar. There's also a phenomenon on the moon that seems counterintuitive to earthbound humans. Here on our world, the atmosphere makes more distant objects seem less distinct. The further away it is, the harder it is to see, because air and stuff in the air. Plus, the human eye often uses things in the foreground or mid-distance, like trees or buildings or rocks, to judge how far things are away from the observer and from each other. There is very little atmosphere on the moon to haze further away objects, so they actually appear clearer and closer than they would here on Earth. Also, the moon is much smaller than the Earth, so the horizon is quite a bit closer. On Earth, a view on a clear day from the top of Mount Everest would give you a 
horizon of about 230 miles or 370 kilometers away. But most of us do not have that kind of a perspective. A six-foot-tall person standing on a flat expanse on a clear day would see the horizon about three miles or five kilometers away. On the moon, which is smaller, that horizon is only about 1.5 miles or 2.43 kilometers away. The photographic record shows way too fast a pace for the pictures, sometimes one every 50 seconds. Impossible! There are too many pictures! It was actually faster than that. The astronauts had special gear with fixed settings that took somewhere around two pictures every second, and some of the cameras took stereo pictures for a panoramic effect. Also, there were two astronauts on the surface at any one time, so, you know, twice as many pictures. Okay, so why is there no flame in the film footage when either the lunar module ascent stage or the launch rocket second stage fire? Well, because they don't use fuel that needs a spark to ignite, but ignites when different parts of the fuel come into contact with each other. This is called a hypergolic propellant. And this makes an exhaust that is transparent. On Earth, this fuel also interacts with oxygen, and so it still makes a visible flame. But there's not enough oxygen around in a vacuum or on the surface of the moon to produce this. Also, engines in a vacuum make no sound because sound needs a medium, such as air, to travel through. And that's why you don't hear the lunar module's engines firing on descent. You do, however, hear small pops as the engine first ignites and then nothing while they're in operation. Speaking of the lunar module, just who filmed Apollo 17 taking off if everyone is inside the spacecraft? I mean, the camera pans up and follows the ascent module. Again, just how stupid do these conspiracists think the conspirators are? It was a remote-operated camera being controlled from Earth. This ground-commanded television assembly, the GCTA, was actually used a few times during the Apollo missions. But the timing's just, just too good on that Apollo 17 takeoff. I thought there was supposed to be a delay for getting signals to the moon. Well, the takeoff was scheduled, so the smart people at NASA could plan for everything, including signal delays. Incidentally, the Apollo 17 camera tilt was the third attempt to try and get footage of this kind. They tried during Apollo 15, but the tilting mechanism on the camera broke, so they couldn't follow the craft descending. And during the Apollo 16 mission, the equipment was fine, but the module flew out of the frame. Ed Fennell, the Earthbound camera operator, triple-checked everything for the Apollo 17 attempt because he knew it was their last chance. Oh, I suppose you're going to tell me there was already a camera on the moon when Neil Armstrong first stepped off the eagle? Huh? How'd they get that footage? Actually, the camera was attached to the Modularized Equipment Stowage Assembly, or MESA, and started working after Armstrong pulled the cord. The cameras supposedly used were specially built just for the mission, so why do you see bright spots in some images? Surely those are film studio lights. Well, they're not. The various lens flares you can see result from a number of causes, each one of which is easily explainable and repeatable down here on Earth. All lenses have a risk of lens flare if the light angles are just right, if there's dust in the air, if dust gets on the lens. Camera assemblies have two lenses in them sometimes, and the sun can reflect off of them, and so on and so forth. A whole bunch of data, tapes, blueprints, etc. have gone missing. Clear evidence of a cover-up. 
Hmm, is it? Yes, some of the Apollo 11 telemetry data tapes have in fact gone missing. In 2005, the Sydney Herald reported that 700 boxes of Apollo magnetic data tapes seem to have been misplaced. In 2006, the magazine Cosmos reported that some of the missing tapes had been found at a marine science lab in Perth, Australia. Then, in July 2019, Sotheby's announced that they had three videotape reels from a lot of 1150 bought at government auction way back in 1976. They had video Video of the Apollo 11 moonwalk, but not telemetry data. It sold for $1.82 million to an anonymous buyer. NASA says that they got a chance to review the tapes before Sotheby sold them, and they have backups of the footage, and so they didn't really care. Grumman Aircraft destroyed most of the documents relating to the lunar module that they built, and Boeing seems to have not kept their blueprints for the lunar roving vehicles, or the LRVs that they built. Make of all this, I guess, what you will. None of it really seems terribly surprising. Organizations are sometimes not terribly efficient, and humans are not terribly careful. And the information missing seems like it probably wasn't that vital. You have to keep in mind that this effort generated a lot of information. So unless you want to go down the rabbit hole of, oh, they found aliens up there and that's what the missing footage shows and then we're on a whole different track altogether. One of the top bits of evidence moon landing deniers cite is the flag. It looks looks like like it's fluttering in a breeze, and yet there's no air on the moon. So it must have been done on a film set, and someone left a door open, and the wind got in, and no one noticed while they were filming. Hey, is that wind? No, I don't think so. I think just the actor playing Neil farted. Oh, cool. Action. Thing is, the flag is not flapping. It's just rumpled. You can plainly see this in a succession of photos of Buzz Aldrin standing by the flag. He moves between shutter clicks, but the flag remains completely stationary, though rumpled. It sticks out because it was attached to something called the Lunar Flag Assembly, or LFA, which was an L-shaped frame to prevent the flag from hanging down, because that would look sad. It's also why the top is taut because the top is attached to the arm of the L. So some thought had gone into the whole flag thing. And that sure seems like a lot more work than just shutting a door or reshooting some pictures if it all took place on a soundstage and someone accidentally let the breeze in or turned a fan on and nobody had noticed. Incidentally, there are six of these nylon flags up there, each one of which has its own LFA, and when the astronauts moved them into position, the free corner of the flag swung back and forth a little bit like a pendulum because the human had imparted some momentum to it while moving it, and there's no air resistance on the moon to cause drag to slow it down quickly, so it took a little time for that vibration to stop. The flags are rumpled because they were folded during the perilous flight to the moon because, of course, they were. What do people think? The astronauts used them for snuggle blankets? Well, why doesn't NASA use the Hubble to show us all the stuff left behind on the moon and clear this whole thing up once and for all? First off, shut up. 
Second, the Hubble looks at things that are very far away, but very, very, very large. It's been aimed at the moon before, but the resolution for an object that close is 55 to 69 meters, which is just not fine enough to be able to see any of the Apollo litter, which is significantly smaller than 55 meters. In July 2009, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter took some pictures of the Apollo landing sites and got the descent stages and tracks and a bunch of other stuff in their photos. Later that year, an Indian lunar mission took photos of the rovers and some tracks from Apollo 15. And in 2010, China sent the Chang at 2 probe into lunar orbit with a camera that can get down to 1.3 meters resolution, and they photographed traces of equipment left behind at Apollo landing sites. They then shared those photos. So unless you want to say that China is also in on the conspiracy, I think we have to just let that one go. A hunch, hunch, an intuition, intuition, a true true conviction. conviction. As mentioned earlier, ever since the first poll on the subject in July 1970, just a year after the event, some people have been skeptical, to say the least. Okay, it really did seem like an incredible thing to have done, and yet it seems kind of counterintuitive. We went to the moon? It kind of does to your brain the same thing that like when you find out that tomatoes are in fact actually fruits and not vegetables. But it really all kicks off in 1976 with the publication of a book called We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 Billion Swindle, which was published in two editions that year, one with an exclamation point at the end and another one without. This was written by libertarian and cynic Bill Casing. Casing was a technical writer at Rocketdyne Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which sounds like a made-up company, but it was totally real, located in the San Fernando Valley and a subsidiary of North American Aviation. He rose to the ranks and was head of publications from 1956 to 1963. Then he quit, probably due to a crushing case of clinical anxiety that basically made him decide that the trappings of modern life were killing us emotionally and spiritually, and that a simpler life was the cure. He started writing books about things like how to buy land cheap and how to start a small-scale farm and motorcycles and basically just became kind of one of the pioneers of the lifestyle that the Oscar-winning film Nomadland is all about. As the Apollo program was heating up in the late 60s, he thought he smelled a rat. So he self-published his Moon Hoax book in 1976 based on, quote, a hunch, an intuition, a true conviction, as he puts it, mentioning many of what have become staple elements of the conspiracy theory as it persists today, that radiation should have killed the astronauts, there are no stars in the pictures, NASA had nowhere near the technology they needed to accomplish this, there's no dust billowing up and no blast craters. He also thought the Apollo 1 fire was staged to silence astronauts who were not comfortable with the ruse and were about to go public. So he thinks even as far back as Apollo 1, they were planning on possibly faking the whole thing. He also says the space shuttle Challenger explosion was the same thing though I don't see the connection. He would go on in later years to espouse other conspiracy theories like that the CIA, FBI, and IRS are all working together to control the media, brainwash Americans, and poison everyone's food. Astronaut James Lovell, an astronaut in Apollo 8 who orbited the moon, called casing wacky, quote-unquote, and went on to say that this stuff made him angry because getting to the moon had been really difficult and the people who accomplished it should be lauded and not lambasted. So casing sued Lovell for defamation, but the case was dismissed. In 2004, conspiracy filmmaker Bart Sibrel followed up his 2001 moon landing hoax movie, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon, with another film on the same subject called Astronauts Gone Wild. 
you got to admit, he's got some pretty great titles there. Shortly after that first movie, he got Buzz Aldrin, second man to step foot on the moon, to agree to meet him at the Beverly Hills Hotel to talk about something else. Aha, but it was a trap! Once Aldrin got there, Sybil tried to make Buzz swear on a Bible that he'd been to the moon. And if he didn't, he said it was treason under penalty of death. I don't know what he's talking about. Needless to say, Buzz refused to do so. Sybil kept poking him with a corner of the Bible and Buzz just walked off. 37-year-old, 6'2", 250-pound Sybil followed him, shouting at him and taunting him, finally cornering the 72-year-old retired astronaut against the wall, calling him a thief, a liar, and a coward. So Buzz Aldrin then punched Bart Sybil in the mouth. Bart cried assault and, look, it's all on film. He'd had a cameraman with him the whole time. But the police say that Buzz looks like he lashed out in self-defense, and that was that. Sybil later admitted in an interview, he had a good punch. It was quick, too. I didn't see it coming. On August 27, 2008, the TV show Mythbusters did a whole episode debunking many of the main bits of evidence touted by deniers. And yet, the theories persist with scores of movies and books about how the moon landing was faked and here's the evidence and blah, 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 blah. Some of the stuff out there is intended to be a joke, like the awesome Moon Truth video that surfaced on the web in 2003 purporting to be an outtake from the fake moon landing footage. See the episode notes for a link to that and many of the things talked about here. And just like so often happens, the moon truth thing, which is clearly a joke, some people think it's legitimate and add it to their proof pile. This continues to happen even when the people who make these videos come out and come clean and admit that it was a joke. Of course, of course that's, that's what, what they, they say. say. Because, as some recent studies have shown, that showing someone who firmly believes in a conspiracy theory evidence that refutes this belief does not, in fact, deter them. Quite the opposite. They double down on the belief. It's almost as if conspiracy theories are some sort of incurable disease, and once you catch one, that's just it for you. X minus one. Yes, that is an old-time radio reference. For me, the number one refutation has to be the Soviets. We now know that they had infiltrated intelligence agents all through the American command structure, and if there had been any evidence the Americans faked the moon landing, they would have touted it far and wide, loudly. Because for them, it really was all just about the propaganda. They didn't care about the moon. When the Americans succeeded where they had failed, they abandoned their moon ambitions, focusing their space program on Earth orbit stuff. In fact, they poo-pooed Apollo 11 when it happened, calling it, quote, the fanatical squandering of wealth looted from the oppressed peoples of the developing world. Not wholly inaccurate. The New York Times actually thought that the Americans had no chance, calling it a one-nation race in a 1964 editorial. And they meant the Russians. In 1966, cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov said, the U.S. has a timetable of 1969 plus X, but our timetable is 1969 plus X minus one. The Americans have been so freaked out by the idea that the Soviet Union might put nuclear weapons in space and up on the moon that back in 1958, they had a number of high-level scientists, including a young Carl Sagan, work on a project called Project A119, which was a plan to detonate a thermonuclear device on the moon as a show of strength. Fortunately, they did not do this. So the U.S. got there first, and the Soviets turned their attention elsewhere in space. 600 million people watched the live video feed from the Apollo 11 landing. 
One of the most astonishing images of all to come out of the entire project is NASA image AS08-14-2383, which was actually taken from orbit in the 1968 Apollo 8 mission by William Anders on December 24th. Since dubbed Earthrise, this high-quality color photograph shows the Earth, our planet, our home, rising over the lunar horizon, half-lit by the sun. It's been called the most influential environmental photograph ever, and some even credit it with starting the environmental movement. Anders himself said, We set out to explore the moon, and instead discovered Earth. It gave rise to the phrase Spaceship Earth, and some science fiction writer, I can't remember who it was, wrote a story that said that the moment that we all saw that image, our planet from the outside, was the moment that the Earth became a sentient being. The space programs, and I include the Soviet one here, as well as efforts made by other countries, and especially the Apollo missions, are sources of pride and wonder in what we can do if we just decide to do it and of our limitless potential. And if someone out there can't or won't see that and instead wants to perpetuate inaccurate ideas based on incomplete knowledge to push some paranoid agenda, well, I guess I feel sorry for those folks. As Betty Davis's character Charlotte Vale says in the 1942 film adaptation of the novel by Olive Higgins Prote, now Voyager, don't let's ask for the moon. We have the stars. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.